Let's pray together. As we do just the verse or two from God's word, I love when God gives us not just a commandment or an instruction, but then he immediately follows it up with a promise or a word of hope. And at the end of Psalm 46, just as we go to prayer, let's just bear this in mind. He gives us this instruction. God says to cease striving. That means working so hard and know that I am God. And here's the promise. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. And the God of Jacob is our stronghold. Father, thank you that uh, as your word tells us in in some ways very directly and clearly, in other ways it's just implied there right beneath the surface. But Father, you know our frame. You know how we're made, how we're wired. You know, Father, where we're weak and where we're strong and where we're proud and where we're humble and where we're joyful and where we're broken and everything else about us. And Father, knowing everything about us and about the the way we are and the stuff we're going through, you give us this word from Psalm 46 to cease striving, to stop pressing, pursuing, trying to impress you, trying to impress the world, trying to trying to build a reputation and 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 everything, whatever it is we're after, Father, the ambitions of our heart. And and you say simply, know that you are God. You will be exalted, you are with us, you are among us. That if we'll, as we just saying, turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face, all this stuff in the earth that seems so important and sometimes so frightening, it'll grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. Father, thank you for the words of, of Scripture and the words of these hymns and songs that remind us who you are and how much grace and love and mercy there is for all of us who will turn our eyes and our hearts to you. Father, we thank you for the assurance that you're here with us this morning and that as we worship and as we pray and as we study your word and as we spend time with one another and, Father, we get used to this whole kind of new arrangement of how things work here in our church family, Father, for the promise that you are with us and you've got it all under control. Father, that's true of our church, but it's also true of our own lives. Father, I realize that on any given Sunday morning we walk in here, some of us very joyful and some of us with broken hearts and Father, I thank you that we can hand all of that back over to you, and we do that right now, our worries and our fears and our anxieties and everything else, so that we can give our full attention to you. Father, not to what any man has to say as he speaks from your word, but to what you want to say to us as your word is preached, what you want to say to us as your word is read, as, as these songs of faith are sung, that you have something to say to us, and Father, we pray, oh God, that we would listen. Father, we realize that as always, if anything good's going to happen here this morning, we do, in fact, need you to make good on this promise to be with us. We need you to send us your Holy Spirit to move and to work in each and every one of our hearts. Father, we, so we ask you to do that right now as we open your word, to send your Holy Spirit to guide us in truth, Father, because your word is truth and there's so much hope to be found in it. We, we ask at the same time that your Spirit would come and guard us from error and misunderstanding because nobody needs to leave more confused than they came. Father, we ask that by the power and the presence, the ministry of your spirit right now, you just deliver our hearts from the stuff that's in the way, the things that are going to cover our ears or cover our eyes or or, or darken our understanding. Father, you just sweep all of that away so that for the next few minutes we might truly and actually, as Ted already prayed, see Jesus. Father, may we see Jesus clearly this morning as we dig into your word. May we see Jesus only this morning as we dig into your word. And when we leave here in a little while, Father, to whatever our day and our week holds, I pray that we will leave not just with our hearts lifted and our emotions stirred, Father, but with an even deeper confidence and assurance and a joy that you are there, that you are good, and that you're in control. 
We ask all these things in the precious and the powerful name of Jesus, whom we, to whom we pray and to whom we love. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. You may be seated. As you're being seated, we'll go ahead and dismiss for Children's Church. There are some boys and girls, I know that may be a challenge at, at the 8 o'clock service to find very many boys and girls who are 5 years old up through 2nd grade, but if they're here, they can go and spend some time in God's Word as we seek to do the same thing. So if you have a Bible, as the kids are making their way out, grab your Bible and turn in it with me to Mark chapter 11. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Mark chapter 11. If you don't, I want you to get up next to somebody who does so that you can follow along as we study the Scripture and and begin a, a brand new series of studies in God's Word this morning that I am super, super excited to be sharing with you. And And so make your way to Mark 11. We're going to read there in a moment. As as you're making your way there, I'll just agree with, I'm sure, maybe the the cry this morning or the gratitude, the praise of many of your hearts that the game did not go into overtime last night, all right? I wanted to be fresh this morning because I was fired up about this message and it was 10.30. I thought this field goal better go in because I don't have another half hour. And praise God it went in and all was well in Hawkeye land for another Saturday night. And, uh, And so that got me fired up last night, but I'm much more fired up about what we're going to see in the scriptures here today is as we, uh, we talk about something that's been on my heart for a long, long time and God has been cultivating in my heart. And, and I just hope that in what I'm going to share with you from God's word this morning, I can give you some of, just some of the overflow of what God has been pouring into me. And if God does that, that will be enough this morning as we, uh, as we study his word. And we're going to look at, at Mark chapter 11 And we're going to read the passage here, a story from the life and ministry of Jesus in just a moment. But before we do that, to sort of set up, not just where we're going in the Scripture this morning, but where we're going to be going in the Scripture for the next seven weeks, let me begin by making this statement, a statement that I I believe the, the reality, the truth of with all my heart, and it is this, that I am convinced. Everybody say, he's convinced. You may not be convinced, but I am, that after 35 years in my life, based primarily my own experience walking with Jesus, and now more than 15 years in pastoral ministry, I am convinced that there is no more frequently discussed, and yet at the same time, frequently, less frequently practiced spiritual discipline than the discipline of prayer. I believe there is no more frequently discussed and yet less frequently practiced spiritual discipline than the discipline of prayer. Now understand as I say that this morning, that's not a gripe. That's not a complaint. I certainly don't mean to share it as an indictment because if it's an indictment, I am guilty as charged as much as anyone else. I simply believe that it's a fact that as Christians, most of us struggle with prayer. We don't know how to begin. We don't know what to pray about. And and even when we finally figure out some things that we could or maybe even should pray about, many times we find ourselves stuck in this daily loop of just praying the same things in the same words to God over and over and over again. And we say, if this is prayer, man, I, I don't know, I'm not getting it. It's not seeming to work for me. As Christians, many, if not most of us, struggle with prayer. And as for the thought of actually attending a church prayer meeting, a gathering of believers coming together for that express purpose for 30, for 60, for 90 minutes or more, well, how about that thought? Again, I don't mean this to sound snarky or or disrespectful in any way, but I have a hunch that many, if not most of us here this morning, could very, very quickly come up with a list of 10 things we'd rather do than go to a prayer meeting. And again, I don't mean that to be critical. I simply think that's a fact. 
My friend Daniel Henderson, who has been mentoring and teaching me about prayer for the last year, he often says, and he says it with a smile, but I believe it with all my heart, he says the reason most Christians don't go to prayer meetings is because most Christians have already been to prayer meetings, and what they've seen they don't like, and so they don't go back. They say, I've been there, I've done that, and you can go on without me. But what if I told you, all of that said, what if I told you this morning that prayer personal prayer as a follower of Jesus Christ and corporate prayer as the people of Jesus Christ could be something that as a Christian you not only grow in but someday maybe even begin looking forward to. That an invitation to pray together with a few or with many others in your church family is actually something to turn the analogy around that you would begin reshuffling your schedule in order to to be a part of? What if prayer was something that as a believer you could look forward to? Well, that's what I'm here to tell you this morning. That prayer is something that as a believer you can look forward to. I know some of you do already. I'm guessing that most of us probably don't, but I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's word that you can. And, and having spent really the better part of the last year devoting large quantities of my time and energy to the study and the practice and the trying and the failing and maybe even a few baby steps forward in the, in the experience of prayer, I'm at a point where I believe, and that's why it's taken this long to get here in terms of preaching, where I now am convinced that God is laying the groundwork in our church body for that kind of a dream to become a reality. And that's why this morning, and for the next six weeks that follow, we are going to see what the Bible says about the church, and specifically about this local church being and becoming a house of prayer. And today we're just going to scratch the surface in talking about that. In fact, here's how I want you to look at these next seven weeks or these seven sermons together. What they really are is one gigantic seven-part sermon. It's going to take me seven weeks to preach it. And, and so this morning, what you're going to get is introduction. We're just going to start to scratch the surface. We're going to lay out some thoughts and ideas from God's Word, some principles that we're going to spend the, the following six weeks building on. So if I talk about something and then move on, you're like, wait, 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 we need to talk about that more. Have no fear, we will. We'll be back. Today is, is our starting point, our starting line as we go to the Scripture. And to do that, we're going to get, when it comes to prayer and the people of God being a people in a house of prayer, we're going to get the perspective of, of course, none other than Jesus himself. Here in Mark 11, we're going to look at verses 11 through 18. And before we read it, there's just a couple of things you need to know about it, because we're sort of parachuting down in the middle of, uh, of a story in God's word. What you need to know about this story is that it happened on what we as believers call Palm Sunday. It was the day Jesus, of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he's only five days away from being nailed to the cross. It's the beginning of, of the final week of his earthly life, which meaning, means it was an important week, it was a significant week, and really it means that it's sort of a pressure-packed week and, and, and one packed with significance in that everything that happens from here on to the cross is sort of just elevated in its significance. It's like, uh, you ought to be paying attention already, but you really better pay attention now. Because this is the ultimate of what is on Jesus' heart. It happened on Palm Sunday, just after his triumphal entry. It is also, I'll just note, as Pastor Sim, Jim, uh, Jim Simbola has noted many times before in his teaching, that, that what we're going to see here of Jesus in God's word this morning is, in fact, and I agree with him 100%, the strangest picture of Jesus Christ we see anywhere in the New Testament. 
What you're going to see, if in, in many cases, may be unexpected. So let's read it, and as we do, I think you'll see what I mean. Mark 11, verse 11, down through verse 18, here's what God's Word says. It says, Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple. And after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany, little village just outside of town. He spent a lot of time there with the twelve, the twelve disciples, since it was already late. On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went in to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. As an aside, we're not going to talk anything about that this morning. This is just context. That's a weird story, too. You can figure it out on your own. (laughs) Verse 15 is where we are headed. Then they came back to Jerusalem. And he, Jesus, entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he wouldn't permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And he began to teach and say to them, after clearing the temple, those who were left, here's what he said. He said, is it not written, and he's quoting Isaiah 56, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. But you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. And the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Now, there's a lot here, obviously, we could talk about in this story, but for our purposes this morning, we're going to look at essentially one thing. And that is what Jesus meant when he made the statement, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. There's lots of other things we could dig into. This is the one that matters for us. And the reason it matters is because in reading it and seeing that that's what, and hearing that's what Jesus said, and looking at just the very immediate context around it, I believe there are at least three important questions that immediately jump to the surface that we need to grapple with if we're going to understand what Jesus was saying. And they are as follows. Question number one. We're going to dig, uh, dig in a little bit deeper with each of, the, with each of these three but the first question I want to ask, jumping back up to verse 11, again, context before Jesus makes his statement, is simply to ask the question, what was Jesus looking for? When Jesus came into the temple in verse 11 on Palm Sunday, what exactly was it that Jesus was looking for? And just so you know, we're not going to spend a lot of time here because the answer ain't complicated. Because when verse 11 tells us, look again at your Bible, that Jesus entered Jerusalem, came to the temple, and after looking around at everything, went back out to Bethany, what we need to understand is that in that visit to the temple, Jesus was not coming to the temple sort of in the same fashion that a, that a tourist visits the Lincoln Memorial. We'll just want to come around and see the sights. It's a magnificent structure, and we should see what it's all about. That's not what Jesus was doing in verse 11 in the temple. Nor was he at a, at a more significant spiritual level merely visiting the temple on that afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, as as one of the many uh, thousands, if not millions, of pilgrims making their way to Jerusalem even then for the upcoming Passover celebration. It's not why he was in the temple this time either. Instead, when verse 11 tells us that, that Jesus came to the temple, we need to understand the role in which and the mentality with which he came, which is that he came to the temple as the Son of God the eternal, almighty Son of God who had come to earth in human form and as such, he had walked in as Lord of the house. 
as master of this domain, as the one for whom this structure presumably had been built. He came in thinking, this is my house. And when it tells us that he looked around at everything, the language, the original language there suggests that in looking around, he was inspecting everything closely, taking the whole scene in, looking at every detail, every practice, every person, And as he did so, there's one question pounding through his heart and through his mind. How are they treating my house? What are the people doing? How are they treating my house? It's the same attitude you'd have if if you went south for the winter. You, You escaped Iowa for the winter, but you left your keys here in someone else's hand. Periodically, you would pause and ask and wonder to yourself, maybe even aloud, I wonder if they're taking care of my house, whoever I left those keys with, the way that I would if I were there. If they were treating it not as their house, but as mine. Or are they throwing wild parties every night of the week? Are they leaving the doors open all hours of the day and night for man and beast alike just to come through through however, whenever they want and, and do whatever they please? Are they treating it like my house? Or are they using it for their own purposes? And clearly, we read and we're about to see at a deeper level, Jesus did not like what he saw. Jesus didn't like what he saw because verses 15 and 16 say that when he came back the next morning, when he came in verse 11, it was too late to to address what he saw. So verses 15 and 16 say he came back the next morning. Look again at your Bible, and it says this. Then they came, he and the twelve, to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those buying and selling there. He overturned tables of money changers, flipped over the seats of those who were selling doves, and he wouldn't permit anyone even just to walk through as they were crossing from one side of town to the other. They were not allowed to carry their merchandise through the temple. That prompts question number two. Question number one, what was, what, what, what was Jesus looking for? He was looking at, to see how the, the temple, his house, was being treated. Question number two is why was he so upset? Why was Jesus so upset when he came to the temple and and saw the things that he saw? Because chances are, if you're following the story, this is not the Jesus you were taught about in Sunday school. This is not the picture of Jesus that that we talk about in in VBS and, and, and all the other things we do when we want to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, to boys and girls, to to young people, even to adults. And and chances are that if one of our Sunday school teachers tried acting this one out over there in the commons this morning, there would be colorful email in my inbox tomorrow. If one of our teachers is flipping over tables and throwing around chairs and yelling at children, we have a problem. It's not what we expect. Not what we expect here. It's not perhaps what many of us expect from Jesus. The deal here is that Jesus, in a word, was outraged. We don't think of Jesus that way often, but that's exactly what he was. Jesus was in a holy rage. You don't flip over tables or toss around chairs or drive people out. John's account of it says, with a whip, unless you're hot under the collar. 
Because, again, look again at verse 15. I hate to belabor the point, but look at it again. Uh, Just pay attention to exactly what it was that Jesus saw. It says, he came to the temple, and he began to drive out those who were, A, buying and selling in the temple. And that means there's commerce of some sort taking place here. It says, he overturned the table of money changers who were hanging out there. The seats of those who were selling doves, and, and the other gospel accounts indicate all other sorts of livestock as well. And so the deal, sort of just in summary, was that what was going on in the temple is that with the high priest's blessing, merchants had set up shop on the temple grounds. And we get a picture of the temple here, and I realize this is very difficult to see. I thought it might look a little bit bigger. But you see, this whole temple complex, that area in the middle, was really the heart of where worship took place. That area around it, and you see the two orange circles, that was called the courtyard or the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as a non-Jewish worshiper or person could go. And our understanding is that it was in that massive courtyard in the temple complex, so a lot of space, this stuff is going on. All the things that Jesus saw in verse 15. And presumably, the idea was, all of these things were set up in the temple complex, on the temple grounds, for the sake of the convenience of those who came to worship. Again, with the high priest's blessing, it couldn't have happened if he hadn't said so, along with all his cronies with him. Uh, they, were allowed, they had allowed in money changers. What the money changers did was as you came to the temple to worship, that you could take your Greek currency or your Roman currency or wherever it was you came from and exchange it for Jewish currency to pay your temple tax, to make your offerings. Uh, we'll just make it easy. You don't have the right denominations. You can come and exchange it. We're right here for your convenience. Along with that, it talks about people selling doves, other livestock. We know, according to the Old Testament, there were all sorts of sacrifices the Jewish people had to make. Well, who wants to drag a lamb all the way up from Beersheba to Jerusalem, take this little lamb, get it all the way there, only to arrive at the temple and find out, well, he's got a blemish and he's not worthy of the sacrifice. You've got to go find another one. Why not just provide him right on sight? And doves? Who's ever caught a dove? How do you catch a dove? Much less carry it across town, get it to the temple, make your sa- We'll just make it easy for you. We'll set it all up right here, all over the courtyard. We are here for all of your worshiping needs. And to some people, it made perfect sense. But not Jesus. Not Jesus when he saw all this happening in the temple. Because in addition to, to the very obvious racket and, and stench and, and just the, 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 the chaos of all this activity is the fact that, that as Jesus, and we, we presume most other people knew as well, was the fact that again with the high priest's knowledge and full blessing, the priests and those in charge were turning a profit from this operation. It wasn't an even one-for-one exchange. They were skimming off the top. They were, they were price gouging for for the convenience of of all that they were providing in the courtyard. Essentially, if if we're to picture this in some sort of modern-day analogy in our minds, what the priests had set up in the temple complex was a third-rate strip mall of currency exchanges and, and, and the loan sharks, pawn shops. All of this happening in the house of God all of it exploiting the religious needs of God's people. And again, in a word, Jesus was outraged. Verse 15 says, the word there that's used, it says when he drive them, your translation of the Bible may say he threw them out. That is a word laced with overtones of physical violence. He was active, he was emotional, he was angry, and, and it showed. And, 
And when in verse 17, if you look at that, he says this. He says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Think about what that term robber's den means. It means that not only were unsavory characters hanging around in the temple, uh, making a profit, exploiting people in the temple, but if it was a robber's den, the implication is that they had safe cover there to do so. That if I want to do this stuff, the one place nobody's going to bug me about it because it's all okay with the men in charge is the temple, a robber's den. What am I saying? I'm saying it becomes safe to sin in the house of God. Now, the house of God should be a safe place for sinners because we're all sinners. The house of God should never be a place where it's okay and rubber stamped and, and approved to actually be sinning. And so in righteous anger, in righteous outrage, Jesus drove them out. But here's what multiply. I mean, that's bad enough. We can kind of look at that scenario and go, okay, I get where Jesus is coming from now. It's his house. They're misusing. They're abusing it. It's not what it was meant for. But that's not where Jesus outraged. Righteous outrage, sinless outrage stopped. But what multiplied it was the fact that the corruption taking place had both literally and figuratively snuffed out the temple's real purpose. What it was meant for, which again, verse 17, theme statement here this morning, when Jesus said, my house, notice he said, my house, I'm in charge, should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Who could pray in all that chaos? Who could ever worship God in spirit and in truth with all of that activity going on. Thus, the point is that the one thing the temple was chiefly meant for, prayer, wasn't happening. And that prompts our third, our final, and our most important question, the one that's really sort of establishing what we're going to be doing for these next several weeks together, is question number three, well then what is a house of prayer? If that's what Jesus doesn't want his house to be like, if he doesn't want his house to be a place where people are exploited and abused and overlooked and manipulated, but instead he wants it to be a house of prayer for all the nations, what in the world is Jesus talking about? What did he mean when he quoted the prophet Isaiah, which he did, Isaiah 56, when he said, Is it not written? Rhetorical question. Yes, Jesus, it is. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, for starters, sometimes when you want to figure out what something is, and this isn't always the best way to go about it, but sometimes it helps. When you want to figure out what something is or what it's meant to be, it helps to look at what it isn't or what it is not meant to be. So let's talk, or let's just sort of presuppose for a moment what Jesus probably wasn't talking about when he said, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And I'm going to try to do this with as little snark as possible. I don't mean to be uh, critical or, or sarcastic about it, though it may sound that way, but I'm just going to say this at risk of perhaps putting a few of us on our heels. I don't think that when Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, he had in mind most of the prayer meetings we've gone to for most of our lives. And by that I mean this, I do not think when Jesus said, my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations, that he had in mind gatherings that were leader-driven, non-participatory, storytelling, gossip-sharing, news-exchanging, sleep-inducing affairs, where everyone goes around the circle and shares everything that's on their heart, and for the final 90 seconds, one person stands up and asks God to bless and be with all of us till next week. I don't think that's what he had in mind. But those are the prayer meetings, most of what I've been to. 
Those are most of the prayer meetings, quite frankly, I have led. That's how they work. There's, there's us up here, and there's you out there, and we all tell our stories, and nobody actually prays. We're not in a life-giving, nurturing, worshipful way. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. Now, when Jesus said, look again at verse 17, my house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, I am convinced, I'm convinced that he had something dynamic in mind. Something dynamic. By that I mean, and we'll unpack this again over the next six weeks, a scripture-driven, worship-based, spiritual encounter with him where God's people engage in life-giving prayer through which the Holy Spirit makes the presence of God known among us. So well, that's kind of a bold vision. Yeah, it is. But I believe that's what the Bible teaches and expresses in all sorts of ways and in all sorts of places. After all, I say, well, that's kind of a bold vision. The, the Holy Spirit's going to show up and, and, and life-giving prayer and worship-based and dynamic. And, and it's so big that I will actually record the Hawkeye game next week so I can go to the prayer meeting and watch the game. You're saying it could be that exciting? I am. And you know Why? Because if the Lord and Master, Almighty God of the universe, says, this is something I want you to do, and as we'll see over the next six weeks, he promises to bless us if we will do. Can I ask you a question? How would something like that ever be boring? God is the most creative being in the universe. God is the most dynamic, life-giving being. In the, he gave life to us. He calls us to do this. He promises to bless the prayers of his people, how could it possibly ever be a disappointment? What I'm saying is if it's a disappointment, that's on us. It's not on him because this is his plan. So to put it constructively, spin this around, stop talking about what it isn't and talk about what I think the Bible says it is. Let me just offer you sort of a working definition of a house of prayer. This is probably not a perfect definition. I'll probably modify it at some point. It's the best I could do to this point. What is a house of prayer? We'll put it up here so you can sort of jot it down and hopefully remember it. A house of prayer is a gathering of Christians, any gathering of Christians, who understand what prayer is, here's the key, and so they do it because they believe in the power, the potential of what prayer does. It's a gathering of Christians who understand what prayer is, so they do it, so they pray because they believe in the power and the promise of what prayer does. Now, real quickly, let me see if I can break that down, at least by zeroing in on what I think are the two sort of essential parts of that definition, the ones that are underlined. It's a gathering of Christians, that would be those of us who have trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, who understand first what prayer is. Well, what is prayer? Well, my favorite definitions are the ones I can remember, which means they have to be simple. So let me give you the simplest, but I also believe perhaps the best definition of prayer I've ever heard. It comes from Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors, and he says this. He says, prayer, true authentic prayer is simply this, two words, answering speech. Prayer is answering speech. That is to say that because Almighty God is a God who has spoken to us, in his word and in his son, prayer is what happens when we respond to him. Prayer is our response, our answer back to him. He spoke first, we speak back. 
It's the utterance of a heart. Whether you do it silently with your head bowed and eyes closed, or you do it out loud uh, on your own or in a group, but it is the response, the utterance of a heart toward the one who spoke first and who has spoken for our benefit. Do you realize this? God has spoken to you. Prayer is simply saying, I'm in on the conversation. I will respond to what you have. That's all it is. Eugene Peterson takes it further. I love what he says. He says, quote, prayer is the heart, the heart that pumps blood into all of our other words and acts. Prayer is not just, listen, prayer, he says, is not just one more thing in an inventory of elements that make up a Jesus-following kingdom of heaven life. Prayer is the heart. Everybody say, prayer is the heart. You may not believe that yet. I think you will by the time we're done. He then continues. He says, prayer is not something we pull out of a web of revelation and incarnation and then sign on to be prayer warriors. He said, prayer is more along the analogy of breathing, which is to say that if we are to live, we all have to do it. He says, although there are illnesses connected with breathing, there are no excellencies. We don't, I love this, he says, we don't single out individuals and say, she or he is a really great breather. No, they just breathe because they have to survive. (laughs) He's suggesting prayer works the same way. It's not about you're a great prayer and I'm not. No, if we're going to survive, we have to to answer this God who has spoken to us. We get to answer the God who has spoken to us. If we belong to Jesus Christ, praying to him is something we all not have to do, we get to do. And it's for our benefit. That's what prayer is. It is answering speech. As for the second part of the definition, what prayer does. Well, that's really what we're going to spend the next seven weeks talking about, what prayer does and and why it's important. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it today, except to just use Jesus' own statement here to bring out one really exciting and really powerful benefit and blessing and potential of prayer. It's right out of Jesus' own words because he said this again in verse 17. My house shall be called a house of prayer. Don't stop there. Keep going. For all the nations. It's a complete sentence with for all the nations. And among, I think, probably many things Jesus was alluding to in that statement was the fact, the reality, that when the people of God pray and specifically pray together, all the nations encompasses, would you not agree, a lot of people. A lot of very different, radically different people of backgrounds and tribes and, and, and tongues and, and stories. And, and, I mean, it's, it's for everybody. And he says, my house is a house of prayer for anyone and everyone who, with a relationship with me, wants to answer back to me. And so what I think he's implying, very strongly implying, is that when the people of God pray and specifically pray together, a lot more happens than just our needs get met and our moods get lifted. That's great. I want my needs met, and I want my mood lifted, but it shouldn't stop there. I think what Jesus is saying is that when we pray to him with one another, our hearts are knit together in ways they can't be otherwise done. Knit together in unity and trust and joy and love. Is it not true that it's really hard to stay angry at someone you're praying with? Okay, we're going to deal with stuff if we pray together of joy and of love which I would submit the world can't even come close to duplicating. What I'm saying is that one of the first and greatest blessings of praying together is what happens right here between us if we will do it. Our hearts toward each other will be changed. By the way, and and again, this is something else I've heard Jim Cymbala say many times. Have you ever noticed if you read the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, that the church itself, the people of God, 
was not born in a meeting where someone was preaching. It was born in a meeting where people were praying. Jesus didn't say, as, as hard as this is for me to admit, my house shall be called the house of preaching for all the nations. That would be my analogy. He didn't even say my house should be a house of singing for all the nations or a house of serving for all the nations. He said my house should be a house of prayer for all the nations. That's first. Everything else flows from and is empowered by it. A house of prayer is a gathering of Christians who know or are willing to venture into the reality of what prayer is because they believe or, or want to find out what prayer does. That's it. Now, very, very quickly, because I've got about three minutes, I want to give you some homework. You might be able to finish this before class is even over if you're paying attention, so follow along. Here's what I want to do, and if you don't get it done today, I want you to do it before you come back next week. I want you to come back next week, but I want you to do this before you do. Because before you can go anywhere in life, in any realm, you have to know where you are, right? You've got to get the coordinates figured out so we can figure out where we're headed. I think that's true of prayer. And so over the next seven days, I want you to just, and this is one way to do it. This is not airtight. This is not fail-safe. It's just a, a tool for you to try to determine, where is my heart? Where's my mindset in terms of prayer? And again, this isn't meant to, to convict, to condemn. It's simply meant to expose where you are on the following scale. And again, to make it simple, I'm going to give you four options. They all begin with C. That should make it really simple. Just say, which one am I? Don't beat yourself up for it if you don't like your answer, but be honest about your answer when it comes to prayer and the call of God's people to pray together. Number one, and this is sort of an ascending scale, would you, would it be safe to describe you, your heart, as cooperative? Or you are a cooperative prayer. That is, you're willing when the preacher says, let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm in. I'll do it. I'm not excited about prayer. I'm not coming to the prayer meeting, but I'm not going to stand in anybody's way. In other words, I'm the kind of person, I'll pray because it's good. Christians should be good. Prayer is good. God is good. I'll pray. I'm cooperative. Second, next step up the scale, concerned. Maybe you're concerned prayer. Let's say, I'll pray because it's needed. When needs come up, when problems arise, when my friends and my fellow believers in Jesus Christ have a problem, out of my concern for others, hey, it comes across the prayer chain, I pray. Because prayer is not only good, prayer is needed. And, and so I'm going to pray that the need gets met or the wound gets healed or the heart gets transformed. I'll pray for God's help. That's good. Nothing wrong with that. But there's a next step. It's the step of being committed. This is a big step from number two to number three. When it comes to prayer, would you call yourself committed? That is, you have taken the step, if at, at times uneven, fits and starts, where you do, in fact, carve out daily times of focused conversation with the Lord. It might be two minutes and it might be an hour. I don't know. But what I'm saying is you've gone from reactive praying to proactive praying. I am going to initiate the conversation today. And that's because I think prayer is important. It's good, it's needed, but man, it's important that I spend some time doing this thing. There's a fourth option. It's the next big step. It's where we want to get, and it is to be convinced. Which is you operate on the conviction that because your relationship with Jesus Christ is not a duty-based relationship, but a love-based relationship, 
you actually are heading toward the point where you look forward to spending time with him in prayer, where you enjoy spending time praying with other people, and you even see him do stuff as you pray to him freely and often. It's not just that prayer is good, neat, and important. It's a joy. I spent most of my life far from that. I think I'm headed in that direction, which is why I'm excited, because if I can do it, you can too. I suppose there's a fifth option as you look at that list. It's another C. I didn't really want to put it on there. Because you may be looking at that list and say, man, I don't, I, I don't know. I can't find. Well, that C would be clueless, okay? I don't know where I fit. And that's okay too because, again, if you, you, you've got to figure out where you are and where your heart is and, and then decide what am I going to do about it. Do I want to begin working my way in the call to be a house of prayer? Because at the end of it all, here's the thing that should prompt each and every one of us, at the very least, to be willing to consider what it means to be a house of prayer for all the nations and and to begin to consider your part or my part in this church becoming one. Not coincidentally, it also happens to be today's big idea, which is this. Go home with this thought if you remember nothing else. Almighty God wants to spend time with you. Almighty God wants to spend time with you. That's the essence, the heart, the bottom line of prayer. There's a God who has spoken and he wants you to answer back. And Father, we're just going to do that right now. As we go through the the step of we're so familiar with, we bow our heads and close our eyes and we listen in, Father, to realize that in this moment all of our hearts can respond to you. All of our hearts can say, Lord, we love you and, and we're thankful to know you and We want to follow you more and more deeply each and every day. Father, many of us, maybe most of us, myself included, have spent much of our lives just uninformed and maybe even frustrated, hearing we should pray all the time and and not knowing what to do. Father, holding the call to prayer and to pray together at a distance because it just seems awkward and uncomfortable and dull. But God, you're not the author of boredom. You're the author of joy. And Father, I pray that you take us as a church and as individuals from where we are, that you would begin us heading down a path where prayer is not something we have to do, but something we get to do and we want to do. Father, not so we can get stuff from you, but so that we can get to know you and to know your great love for us. Father, take the things of truth spoken here this morning and seal them to our hearts. Take the things of the world and of the flesh and let them be forgotten so that we leave praising and thinking only on Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.